0: This is Union Days, stories from a union scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So, I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, scraps and scrapes heroes and villains tall tales and low blows it's the stuff of life itself and i can't wait to share these stories with you who knows you might see yourself in some of them in fact you probably will though we have changed some names and other details let's get started it's 1990. For the past year or so, I've been working for the NCU, the National Communications Union, which was mostly the union for telecoms, engineering and technical grades, but with very significant minorities, white-collar telecoms workers, postal engineers, and the staff of the then Gyrobank, Bank up in Bootle on Merseyside. I took over the health and safety pitch from Roger Darlington. This was nervy enough in itself. He was held in deep respect by the union's activists and had just come within a whisker of capturing the number two slot in the organisation. He oozed knowledge, confidence and urbanity. How could I possibly measure up? Now, and safety, as it was and is still known, was set apart from your normal or mainstream union activities. That's all thanks to the deeply collaborative character of Haswa, That's the Health, Safety and Welfare at Work Act, 1974, and its offspring, the SRSC regs. That would be the Safety Representative and Safety Committee Regulations, 1977. You see, in health and safety, the two sides of industry, that's us and the employers, are not in competition. No, we are united in pursuit and support of the greater good, safe ways of working and healthy workplaces. That's a concern for everyone. Get it right, and we all benefit. Come up short, and accidents, sick leave, and turnover rise, whilst productivity and profitability fall. That was the mantra. And as a result, safety rep time was not subject to the usual arguments about paid time off for union duties, or facility time as it's known. The job of making sure the workplace was safe took as long as it took. But that was not the only thing that was distinctive. It's fair to say that Elf and Safie was prone to a number of stereotypes. To be a safety rep was, is, conventionally thought to necessitate a particular mindset, a fondness for rules, an eye for detail, a love of opaque acronyms, a passion for technical terminology, a slight social awkwardness, a taking of comfort in being... Different, and any humour could only be of the gallows variety. Being or acting 50 plus was also an unwritten prerequisite. So, along comes me. And the first task was to tour the country talking to mass meetings of safety reps about how important their role is. This was a joint enterprise with time off given and participation encouraged by the employer, who would also, of course, have a spot on the agenda. As you can imagine, attendance was impeccable well time off work which for many meant time inside rather than out in the winter cold on full pay (laughs) what's not to like and actually you know people reflected as they waited for the meetings to begin it is quite appropriate for the company to acknowledge our important role now i don't know where the idea of taking a loaf of white sliced bread to these meetings came from I think it's because Elf and safety is always referred to as a a bread and butter issue. And that must have got my mind going. It's a bread and butter issue, is it? But you can have so many varieties. White, brown, wholemeal, sliced, unsliced, batch, cottage, farmhouse. Lots of possibilities. Just like Elf and safety, You can have it toasted as bread pudding, cut into soldiers. You can see where I was going with this and so could the audience. Take two slices and you've got a sandwich. Ham, cheese, jam, marmite, as many different possible fillings as there are parts of health and safety. Oh, but leave it too long and it goes stale, I warned. Take your eye off the grill and it's burnt. Get impatient and it will end up half-baked. I think the surprise, because National Union reps weren't youngsters prancing around with a loaf of sunblast, more than humour won the audience over. Let's face it, it could not possibly ever have been the um, humour which would have seen me thrown out of the National League of Bad Joke Tellers for telling jokes that were simply too bad. At the time, you could already see some fraying of the esprit de corps that supposedly underpinned these arrangements. Safety reps for the employees were the responsibility of the union to select and send for training and accreditation. The candidates went on a jointly agreed course and at the end got their certificate and badge, the former all personally signed by me and my managerial counterpart. Two particularly sharp union tutors by the names of Bryants, Hudson and Kelly called me up in a bit of a flap one day to say that non-union students were on the course and they were refusing to teach them. The company, with what in my view was false naivety, couldn't see the presence of these students was a problem and professed to simply not understand why we thought it was. Net result was a couple of unhappy and no doubt confused people cooling their heels in the canteen whilst I had to patiently explain that while their departure from the classroom may have been abrupt, and I had no doubt that it was, it was also correct. The whole point about the union part of the title union safety representative is that it fits into a structure of accountability and professional development that non-members are outside of. And that was important because although health and safety was pursued on a bilateral, non-partisan basis, when it came to fixing things found to be wrong, the community of interest would come under real pressure. Why? Well, because fixing things takes cash. The mantra of doing things as soon as is reasonably practicable applies particularly to fixing minor faults. Of course, for glaring hazards, perhaps hidden until some catastrophic incident, there is a clear imperative to make the necessary changes and a legal consequence of not doing so. The Herald of Free Enterprise Car Ferry Disaster, for example. But what actually is reasonably practicable depends on your point of view. It can be near enough never or almost straight away. Who's to say how quickly the worn step or trip-inducing tear in the carpet should be fixed? Depends how much it costs, how tricky it is to do, how likely it is to cause a problem. And at once you can see how the stage is set. This needs to be fixed now, someone on the union side will say, and come up with a whole load of strong reasons why that's the case. Lots of people traffic, every day. Lots of people carrying things so they can't see the problem that's beneath their feet. Lots of sharp edges to cause injury when people fall. All it takes is some hazard tape. That's the gaffer tape that's in wasp-striped colours and twice as sticky as the ordinary version. No, it doesn't, says someone else on the management side. The floor covering is made of stick-resistant material and replacing the whole room will cost a fortune. And people aren't stupid, they'll know to look. And the thing they carry most of is their dinner, because the staff restaurant is just the other side of the tear. So, we'll ban them taking their dinner out the canteen for the duration instead. Most times, it isn't like this at all. But money is a factor in deciding what and when is reasonably practicable. Some managers or companies will cause more discontent than the danger they seek to resolve by simply banning something that is troublesome to them. Kettles in the office is a classic. One workplace did just this, banned kettles in the office. And you can see the argument about lots of boiling hot teas and coffees and cuppa soups. You can see, too, how encouraging people to eat at their desks creates a litter issue or a housekeeping issue or a rodent issue. And you can imagine how delighted not staff were at the kettle ban that was imposed. But in fairness, the house union and management identified a way forward. Galley kitchens in each department with a water heater and microwave and fridge. Some departments were so house proud or maybe lazy or or, or perhaps efficiency minded that they lobbied for funding to get dishwashers as well. Everyday solutions for everyday issues and problems. That accounts for an awful lot of health and safety. But bogs and basins are not just a mainstay of safety work they are also a mainstay of working life. If there's nowhere or no way to have a cuppa, nowhere to wash your hands and nowhere to go to the loo, your business is not going to run efficiently or happily. It beggars belief that some employers still seem to think there's will. And solutions usually do not need to be expensive. Often the biggest barrier is a lack of will and imagination rather than a shortage of cash. Or perhaps... It's a lack of awareness, an inability to see problems and risks that to others are quite obvious. This lack of awareness, either by design or default, can occur at any point in what are often very long chains of command. Quite possibly because there are very long chains of command. And almost certainly because there is a pressure on costs to try and do the job too cheaply. Let me give you an example that sticks in my mind. Company A has contracted out its buildings maintenance to Company B. Company A doesn't do buildings maintenance, it does something else and wants to concentrate on its core business. Company B has been delighted to get the gig. The market for their services is tough and this is a big contract in terms of value and kudos. In fact, Company B is a purpose-built joint venture between three very big beasts in this field created specifically for the purpose of bidding for the contract. This created a load of problems, sorry, um, issues. That's another story. Perhaps the potential benefits affected the calculation of cost and risk. People often said about Company A that the challenge of servicing a huge operational estate was hard to understand and easy to underestimate from the outside. But anyway, here we were locked into contractual togetherness. The road hadn't been easy. As a union, we urged caution. Look at an in-house option, we said. Don't be seduced by this facile lift and shift, shiny logoed outsourcing palaver. Okay, said the company. We will look at an in-house option. And then proceeded not to do so. The employer's justification for acting in such bad faith because that is absolutely what it was, was that no in-house option could ever match the benefits of outsourcing. Oh, really? We threw the kitchen sink at this one. The company codenamed this project Jaguar after the business transformation program in that high-end car manufacturer. Very smug, very sure of themselves. Not quite so smug, after I'd spent an extremely productive couple of hours with John Egan, past CEO of aforementioned company, who had devised and delivered that programme, and who was currently doing just about the same at the British Airports Authority. Not so smug, because now I knew far more about the original Project Jaguar than those who had appropriated the name. Not so smug either, to find their glitter set in the context of what had worked And what hadn't? That the union's due diligence had thrown up practical issues that seemed to be missing from the project plan? It was nearly a classic case of hubris, of too much pride leading to a fall. Frankly, I was incensed at having been lied to over the in-house bid. And so too were our members. The possibility of a strike ballot across the whole company loomed large. If a promise on an important issue to 1,300 employees could be broken so easily, What faith could the other 120,000 have on the employer's commitments on any issue? Negotiations went on into the evening, into many evenings. The crunch meeting was surreal, overlooking the vast central atrium of the corporate HQ. It was summer and the FIFA World Cup was on. A huge screen had been set up and people had stayed on after clocking off to watch the England game. This was crucial, as they'd underperformed woefully in their opening match. Clearly, not the only ones to have misjudged their opposition. It was a tense affair, but eventually the deadlock was broken. On the pitch, it was a Jermaine Defoe Topoke. Around the negotiating table, it was an agreement which saw us accept the principle of outsourcing, but protect the terms and conditions of all those currently doing the work. Ten years later, The company recognised its mistake and bought everything back in-house. And a few years after that, the biggest of the big beasts involved in that joint venture imploded. Yes, Carillion, I am talking about you. In the intervening 10 years, however, the mismatch between promise and reality became quite stark. Temperature control in buildings became quite an issue. You'd be genuinely hot under the collar in summer and freezing in winter, but unable to adjust the thermostat locally. Work allocation missteps meant that the only way colleagues felt they saw each other was passing in opposite directions at 70 miles an hour on the A1. These missteps were part of a contract that was set up with two tight financial constraints. Pay rises were viewed as unaffordable. The best way to get an increase in wages was actually to leave and then come back in a couple of months when the firm realised it simply couldn't fill the vacancy at the miserable rate offered. That's a true story. Around the time I landed on the Elf and Safety patch, green issues started to make an impact. Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace were forcing themselves onto the agenda in a new way. Perhaps it was a generational thing. Most likely it was a combination of circumstances, a confluence of time, place, ideas. Sheffield was the specific place where a green shoot germinated and became the standard bearer for our environmental policy. But were we really that far ahead of our time was the investment in going green real or just a token what practical difference did it all make you can find out this and much much more on the next episode of union days This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes, production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makes you Thanks for listening.